0: Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're coming back now to the book of 1 Corinthians after a month, uh, thinking about our core values, thinking about the anniversary service and uh, Mother's Day. And so we're coming back to the book of 1 Corinthians and we're starting the second major section uh, topic that. Paul addresses. Um, He, on the surface, seems to be addressing issues regarding human sexuality, um, but he's still, interestingly, dealing with matters of the cross and how the cross needs to be a central focus, needs to be a foundation on which everything else is built, all of our life relationships and all the things that we do. And I'm very thankful for Pastor Williamson's message last Sunday about how Christ is our cornerstone. Christ is the, the sure foundation for the universal church. He's also the sure foundation for this local church. And his question asked us, how firm is the foundation? And I loved his illustration of the cornerstone, that deeper cornerstone which every block in a building aligns itself to. It's a great illustration, Christ being the chief cornerstone. It's it's a, it's a firm and fixed foundation, yet it's very possible for something to get wedged between that foundation, that cornerstone, and the series of blocks that continue. In fact, it's very possible that the foundation may be set, but there could be a shim, there could be a piece of debris, and so you have a lopsided wall that develops off of that cornerstone. And Paul, in the first four chapters, has been addressing one of those shims, one of those, those wedges, and that's pride. Pride being placed upon a foundation of Christ crucified and the humility of the cross will create a distorted picture of what the gospel looks like. And it's so critical that we remove those things so that the truth of the cornerstone might be apparent in all of our structure, the church. And so, it's important for us to recall the central thrust of the gospel that it actually should humble us to our very core. The human tendency is to make much of ourselves and to to make ourselves look great in the view of everyone else. But when we do that, we make a lopsided wall. And while the foundation of the gospel of Christ Himself is firm, we project a distortion of what the gospel is. As I said, it should humble us to our core because there was nothing good within you whereby God had to save you. There is nothing good. And there's still nothing good. In fact, God passed over a whole lot of people more nice, more noble, and more beautiful than you to bring you the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God had chosen to have a relationship with you ought to deeply humble you. And there are people who are dying and going to hell today that God passed over when He brought you into relationship with Him. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, Paul said this in verse one, chapter 1 verse 30, he said, "'It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus.'" It is because of God and His intervention into your world that you have a knowledge of Him and you have a relationship with Him. And so, God did not save you so that you could boast about all that you do for the King. God saved you so that you could boast in all that the King of Kings has done for you. It's not about you. And pride manifests itself in subtle ways, serpent-like ways. And so, chapters 5 through 7, Paul changes topics from divisiveness and pride to sexual immorality and lawsuits and marriage and human relationships, but the underlying issue that addresses all of these problems is still the same. The foundation is firm, but there's a wedge of pride and arrogance that affects all of these other relationships. How do I see this? Well, we haven't read the text yet, and we'll read it in just a moment. But take a look at chapter 5 and verse 2, where he says, and you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? Now, I should read the context by which that verse occurs. So let's pick it up in verse 1. It says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing." as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning that the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the adulterers, since then you would need to go out of the world. from among you." And so, he's, he's recognizing that there's this wedge of arrogance and pride that has come between them and the teaching of the gospel. They are now above the teaching of the cross. They're judging it and arbitrating what they will do and what they won't do, and their boasting is not good. They're not going to submit themselves to the ethical mandate of the gospel that those who are called into holiness would in their lives start manifesting holiness. And so, in this text, Paul is highlighting that if we are to follow the crucified Christ, it requires a radical gospel commitment. Now, what do I mean? That when you come to Christ, you must humble yourself. God will give you a new heart So that you desire those ethical demands. This is not moralism, but it's the growing appreciation of the grace of God that transforms the heart from the inside out. It fuels a growth in godliness. And so, I've broken this chapter, the whole chapter that we're going to consider here this morning into three pieces that fit around that thought that radical gospel commitment is necessary as we follow Christ. Because, first of all, it causes us to expose hypocrisy. Verses 1 through 5, the paragraph begins with horror. It's reported, he says. It's reported. It's actually rumored. It's actually spoken of out there that this is going on. He's horrified. And the word here, sexual immorality, is a word in the original that is broad, and it encompasses encompasses all kinds of immoral behaviors. So, it's actually hard for us at times to imagine that something like this could have been happening in this church and it not being addressed. In case you missed the point, this is something that not even pagans were participating in, that even pagans would say that incest is wrong and that's what was going on here. And in that culture, we have to understand how bad it was because it's actually getting very close to how we are today. One person in the culture said, we have mistresses we keep for the sake of our pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. That was the mindset in that day. But even as out there as that is, even the pagan world said that this kind of relationship was totally off limits. But yet the Christian church is excusing it and overlooking it and it becoming acceptant of it. And it, is so, it was so pervasive in that culture, a lot like today. In fact, we are very nearing, if we're not already there, we have become the culture of the Corinthians. How do these things happen in the first place? Well, we know it's very difficult. It's difficult here to understand the whole situation of what was going on. But it seems as if here it's only the man who is the professing member of this church family. Given the full mutuality that God has for men and women, And even as Paul writes in chapter 7, he addresses man and women in how he relates to a married couple. It seems as though that here the person who is the believer and the one with accountability is the man It's professing his relationship to the church. Perhaps the church was looking at the situation and thinking, oh, we might cause offense to the person who is outside of the church, and so therefore we need to be so careful that we don't create any sort of waves here. Maybe she will come to faith in the gospel. But the reality is they were overlooking the personal responsibility to deal with sin and to deal with it clearly. And so, when Paul here, he's addressing that their pride has skewed their view of personal responsibility as believers… It's difficult, as I said, to understand exactly what's going on in full context, but we know that pride is fueling. And when Paul gets to the Lord's table in chapter 11, we're going to look at that chapter as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table in a little while, but when he gets to chapter 11, he says something very interesting. He says that this church, this church was sickly. And that there were even deaths occurring because they had failed to examine their own hearts. They they failed to examine whether or not their ethical behavior was matching the call of the gospel. They were just assuming that, that they didn't have to change. Perhaps they thought that, well, we're busy for the Lord, so therefore it doesn't matter how we talk about other people. Maybe they were given to pride and divisiveness and they were overlooking things and so there were sickness in the midst of them and even deaths had occurred because God was judging them because they wouldn't judge their own hearts. But that's what radical gospel commitment requires. It, and, it, and Paul gives us a view of what it looks like here. It looks like breast-beating sorrow over sin. In chapter 5... In verse 2, he says, and you are arrogant, ought you not to rather mourn, mourn, like going to a funeral? You ought to be so aware of your sinfulness that you are not excusing the sinfulness. Instead, you are lamenting over it. That's a radical gospel commitment. Because if we don't mourn over sin, we are in fact covering over sin and we're creating hypocrisy. The gospel of Jesus Christ looks like perfection in Christ. Sometimes we get so confused by thinking that we, will, we have to project perfection to the world. And because we can't keep that standard, what we do is we write the standard down lower to what we can keep, and then we pat ourselves on the back saying, oh, we're all right. But then we overlook relational sins and we create hypocrisy. But the gospel teaches us that we turn from our sin when the Holy Spirit points out, we don't cover it over, we take it to the cross. We repent of it, just as in the day in which we repented and believed in the cross of Jesus Christ. We reapply the gospel. We come by faith believing that, that God's love for us is unconditional, and we turn over that sin at the foot of the cross. We have to mourn over sin because if we're not mourning over sin, we may be in danger of celebrating over sin, and that's hypocrisy. We need to focus our hearts on what truly is celebrate, celebration what is true celebration? I think the gospel, it's important for us to really understand just how, how, how desperate and needy we are. Let's go to the second paragraph here, verses 6 through 8. Radical gospel commitment also causes us to celebrate sincerity and truth. Verses 6 through 8, Paul uses an analogy here from his Jewish tradition, and it would be very understandable to the people that he was writing to, maybe a little bit harder for us to understand this concept of leaven and, and a lump and how does that work, but it would be very understandable in that day because in that day they didn't have cultured yeast like we have today, in which you maybe you keep your yeast in a little jar in the fridge if you bake. And um, in that day, uh, they didn't have that. And so, what they, they did is they had, there were bacterias. They would allow um, their, their dough to sit out and, and take in bacterias, and then it would create a fermentation uh, process. And so, what they would do is they'd take a little piece of this dough that had been fermented and save it, hide it away. And then they'd have a little bit for tomorrow's batch, and they would stick it into that that dough, and it would spread throughout the dough and ferment and rise. And then at the end, before they bake it, they'd rip a little piece off, and they'd stick it in a closet somewhere, in a jar, and then they would do that again potentially every day. You know what? You could indefinitely have leaven in your house, bacteria in your house, infinitely. Well, in the Old Testament… At Passover it was commanded that they would remove all the leaven in the house and they would start fresh that year out. At Passover they would remove all of that and they would bake bread without this leaven and it would be like flatbread. And it was a a sign a looking forward to the day in which Christ would remove the contaminating effects of the world. From us. And Paul uses this illustration of this old leaven that it's necessary for believers in Christ to remove all of this, like this person even, this incestuous relationship from the batch. It needs to be removed. Now, that's a corporate responsibility, but it also is applicable to us individually. That we also need to take out and remove all things that contribute to that which is not sincerity and truth. He says here, let us therefore, verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so, when we commit ourselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it causes us not to, to, you know, live in secret with these little secret sins that we think that we're covering up, but yet everybody knows we've got them. (laughs) Instead, this says, get rid of these things. Instead, celebrate sincerity and truth. Why? The truth is, the gospel tells us this, that we're worse than we think. But yet the gospel is is greater than we can imagine. because we will not be thrown out. God is redeeming us, He is saving us. So let's get rid of this which doesn't belong to Christ. Let's get rid of it. And so self-examination is so critical. It's an important part of our, our becoming like Christ. Notice what Paul says in verse seven. Very important, so important. In verse 7, he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. That is so important because just when it appears that Paul is saying that you're working your own salvation out, he comes along in verse 7 and says, no… You're doing this not to gain acceptance with God. You already are unleavened bread. You get rid of this because it's now going to match how God views you. Paul was burned by his own Phariseeism. He was permanently scarred. Paul knows that good living and high standards is no way and in no way leads to the gift of acceptance with God. He knows it. All the things that he did, he counted them like dung. They were worthless to him. And he, Paul knows that because of Christ and Christ alone and His sovereign grace, he is in Christ. So then why do we obey God? Why do we obey God? Paul's image here is really fascinating because he moves from the Passover to Christ, which is is so powerful. Christ is our Passover lamb. And how appropriate that is. As we take Jesus into ourselves by faith, Christ separates us from Egypt, the world, unto Himself. And when we leave the sin-saturated world of Egypt, we find a Savior which is incomparably better. Christ is greater, and our joy in finding Him can become complete and full. And so it's out of the joy of that relationship with Him that we separate ourselves from our old lifestyle of lusting after things that don't satisfy us. By those idols that we put on our shelf that think that we have our security found in them. We no longer slander. We no longer are filled with, with drunkenness. We treat our fellow human being humanely. We don't distort people because we have found a security that is infinitely better, which is Christ. Christ died to separate us from the bondage of sin and to to bind us to His righteousness. So we don't leave the gospel. We, We keep coming back to it as we are aware that we have sin in our lives and we Expose it to the cross. It's been forgiven. We leave it there. And we turn to Christ who is infinitely greater. David Brainerd, who in the 1600s was a missionary, excuse me, 1700s, was a missionary to the North American Indian. And some of the Indians that he ministered to were actually in our area said this in his journal. He said, I never got away from Jesus and Him crucified. And I found that when my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and Him crucified, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. I found that one one followed as the sure and inevitable fruit of the other I find my Indians begin to put on the garments of holiness, and their common life begins to be sanctified even in small matters when they are possessed by the doctrine of Christ and Him crucified. It's so critical that we have a clear grasp of what Jesus did for us. So, when we come to the table, we're partaking in unleavened bread… We're partaking in fruit of the vine, which picture our sacrificial lamb. And a radical gospel commitment celebrates the free grace that is for us in the gospel, and it makes a lot of transformational living. We become transformed as we we look at the cross, and we keep taking our sin to the cross. We will find that the Holy Spirit is working within us and making those fruits to come. The third point here in this progression of Paul's thinking, I see, there is a radical gospel commitment that causes us to think clearly about the church as well. Verses 9 to 13, apparently Paul had had a 1 Corinthians before this 1 Corinthians. He had written, giving them some instructions. We don't have it here in our Bibles, but he says, I wrote to you before… In verse 9, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not meaning, at all meaning, the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the adulterers, since then you would need to go out of the world. And so, Paul wants to give clarity to help them understand what he's saying and help them to have clarity in thinking about the church. It's not helpful if people think that they are believers, and then yet they're living like the devil. Church members ought to be rubbing shoulders with the immoral of this world. We need to have personal integrity not to become like the world, but we've got to be in it. Otherwise, we're not going to be salt and light. And it's from this text, actually, that we find biblical warrant for the establishment of a formal church membership. Church membership is not a civic requirement. It's a biblical expression of one's personal identity with a local expression of the body of Christ. You need to be a committed member somewhere Identified with a particular body of believers. Members are those who are covenanted together. They're they're numbered, so that there's a clear inside and outside. Paul uses those terms in this text. Those who are inside are to be judged. We don't judge those who are outside. And so Paul is talking about the reality and the need of commitment that is real, and it's for your good. It's so that you might flourish as believers in Christ. Did you know that there are two forms of discipline that we need as believers? We need formative discipline, and we also need corrective discipline. And when Paul writes in other places that all Scripture is profitable for teaching and for training in righteousness, he's talking about formative discipline. The word as it's taught, as it's declared, has a disciplinary work. It points out areas of sin, and it causes you to examine your heart. It's, it's more subtle, that is for sure. But this formative discipline shapes and molds Christians, and the, mass, the mass, vast majority of formative discipline occurs as we teach the Word, yes. And as you develop the personal discipline of reading the Word of God and as you rub shoulders, yes. But there is also a time that's needed for corrective discipline. But in order for corrective discipline to occur, you actually, we have to have a clear idea of of who is a part of a church, who is in the church and who is outside of the church. And the church's correction is necessary for those really bad sins, yes, but it's also needed for those mundane things that we might overlook at times and turn a blind eye. But we need to be able to address with confidence people who are inside the body if they are persistent in laziness, if they're persistent in slandering, if they're persistent in drunkenness or greed. Corrective discipline doesn't always have to go to the full extent of thrusting out of the church. The truth is, unless you tell the leaders of this church that you are in the number, we really don't… we're really not going to do corrective discipline with you. But what you're doing is you're, you're missing the opportunity for people to speak truth into your life and allow others to, with their giftedness, communicate with care. That's intentional shepherding. Otherwise, we're just a social club. We're going to try our best to give formative discipline through the teaching of the Word of God here, but what you're doing is you're separating yourself and you're missing out on that second part of discipline, which is corrective. The question is, are you a member of this congregation? Membership is not without personal cost and commitment, but it is the next step in your personal discipleship. It is a demonstration to the world that you are connected to one particular congregation for whom you demonstrate to the world that you are His disciple by loving this group of people. Give it some thought. If you're not a member, I encourage you, When we offer the membership class again, give it consideration. Consider if it's now the right time for you to graft into this body. But if the gospel is the radical commitment of your heart, it's going to demonstrate. It's not going to be this lopsided wall. It's going to… it's actually going to align with Christ, the gospel of a crucified Christ is the foundation of this church. What it's going to do is going to call sinners to repentance. It's going to expose hypocrisy and it's going to make a difference in our own hearts and lives. The message of a crucified Christ will cause us to live humbly and submit ourselves joyfully to Jesus Christ as the King of Kings, the Shepherd King. And so to follow the crucified Christ, it requires a gospel commitment to expose hypocrisy, celebrate sincerity and truth, and to think carefully about our place within the church. Let us bow our heads and pray. And after I pray, I'm going to ask the elders actually, as I pray, to come and prepare the table.